This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. I'm so glad that you're here. Ten years ago, when we started Vortex Church, our dream was really to create spaces like this where people like you could come and feel like you were being built up, not beat down, to live uh, and leave uh, just feeling like life had been poured into you. And over the next few minutes, we're going to talk about something that is, in many ways, kind of outside of our normal perspective. And it's an unseen war that we're all in. Every person in this room is engaged in that war, and throughout this series, we're inviting you, instead of just to simply be victims, actually to fight back. You know, the enemy has a plan to come against everything that God wants to give birth to in your life. God has a plan, the enemy has a plot, and that plot is three parts in its implications. The first we went through last week that our enemy attacks us from within using our flesh. So last week we talked about our broken flesh and how the enemy attacks that. We specifically looked at how to fight back. So how do we fight back against the flesh? The first thing that we need to do is we need to learn to run from temptation. We all have different things that tempt us, whether it's scrolling on social media and being kind of inundated with things that we don't like about our lives because they're amazing or appear to be amazing in other people's lives, or maybe it's just stuff that's fueling addictions, or it's just simply the desire to control. We all have temptation. And instead of trying to manage our temptation, we should run from it. We should flee it, run from temptation. Number two, renew your mind. We all come out of sinful, broken past, and because of our sinful and broken past, there are sinful and broken patterns of thought that continue to, unless they're ever addressed, trip us up. This is why the Bible says in Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And lastly, be filled and led by the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not just some supernatural kind of churchy thing. This is something that's very practical for our daily lives to be filled and led by the Holy Spirit, especially in regards to the flesh. The Bible says in Galatians 5 that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of our flesh. So the first part of the enemy's plan against us is to attack us from within using our flesh. The second part is to attack us from without using worldly powers and systems. The world that we live in is broken and fallen. There's nothing that has been left untouched by the affects of sin. And to expect anything in this world to be perfect is literally to expect it to be heaven, which is not where we are right now. Then number three, we are attacked supernaturally by the enemy. This is the devil, Satan, Genesis 3, the serpent, and his forces, fallen angels, demons. There's literally an unseen war being waged against you. The bottom line is you are under attack. You are under attack. Jesus said in John 10.10 that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. 
which in, in its simplest implication means that authentic life is only found in Jesus. There are so many ways that we factor what life could be, that if I can finally go on that vacation or get that job or get into that program in school, then I will finally be alive. But life is authentically found in Jesus Christ. But we have a thief. There's an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy every good thing that God wants to give us. And it looks different. I mean, we see this just in its simplest understanding. I mean, Eve in the garden. One rule, right? Don't eat from that tree. Tempted. If you eat from that tree, you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. Deceived. Deceived. It's not going to be that way, but I thought it was going to be that way. I thought it was going to do that. I was deceived. Adam, who God shows up afterwards, where are you? Where are you? We're hiding because we're afraid. We're naked. And God's second statement after that, this, this, where are you? And then this next, who, who told you that you were naked? In other words, you've always been that. But who told you? Who told you that you were a loser, that you were always going to be alone, that it was never going to work out, that you're always going to have difficulty in your marriage? Who told you that? Was it your loving Heavenly Father or was it your enemy? Who told you that? Adam was lied to and believed it. Then Peter, who's literally at the foot of the cross as Jesus is being crucified. Night before, Peter, the devil desires to sift you like wheat. In other words, you're going to get tested. I hope you pass it. But he doesn't. In sight of the crucified Jesus, Peter denies Jesus three times, as Jesus had predicted. This is not new to the teaching of Jesus, that we have an enemy. He warned us of this war, and in John 16, verse 33, he says something really profound. I have told you this so that you might have peace in your hearts because of me. Because real peace is not anchored in our circumstances. It's anchored in the person of Jesus Christ. So I can be in very difficult moments, but still have peace because it's not anchored in my situation. While you're in this world, you will have to suffer which doesn't seem like good news, but cheer up, for I have defeated the world. That's the good news. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to cower back from the reality that we are in a war. And the truth is that we don't have to be afraid because Jesus has already won this war, which means we fight this battle from a place of victory, not for victory. My victory is secured not in my performance, but in the person of Jesus Christ alone. So today we're going to look at the second part of that attack, that the enemy attacks us from within using our flesh. The enemy attacks us from without using the world. And I think that up first we need to understand what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the world. See, in a war, while preparing to fight a war, you must first understand your enemy. So every army sends out spies ahead of a war. This was true for the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. It was true all the way back to the Israelites as they came out of Egypt and sent 12 spies into the promised land to scout it out and understand the enemy. 
The church has gotten into a lot of trouble because of how we understood this phrase, the world, in the context of our spiritual struggle. So I'm going to make a few observations from the text today regarding the world. And the first thing that I want you to see today is that God loves the world. This is so simple. But it seems to be so far outside of many of our frame of reference when it comes to how we live in this world. God loves the world. As a matter of fact, many of us memorized the Bible verse when we were kids that speaks to this. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. The Greek word in the original text that's translated here into, word, into world is the word cosmos. It's literally where we get the English word cosmos, this vast array of all that has been created. And in this context, it can be translated into earth, but more aptly it would be understood as the human family, humanity. On this earth right now, there are three things that are eternal. God his word, and people. And that's it. God loves people. He loves people so much that he was willing, because sin had separated humanity from God, he was willing to sacrifice his son as the perfect payment for that sin so that all humanity could be brought into a relationship with him as we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And in this, not only does God love the world, but we should love the world too. In the garden, there was one rule, one command. Don't eat from that tree. We blew it. Not too long from there, there were 10 commands. Mount Sinai, God delivers the 10 commandments to Moses. We, immediate, we immediately, Moses comes down off the mountain and it's being broken immediately. So then in the book of Leviticus, God delivers the, what is the paramount, the law. Over 260 commands that God directs for people. And the New Testament tells us that the law was given to prove the sinfulness of man. We can't do it. We can't. Our best efforts always fall short, even if we had one rule. So to simplify this in the New Testament, Jesus goes from 260 all the way back to one in John 13. Notice this, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another, which means the standard for love is the way in which Jesus has loved us. This is how I am supposed to love others the way in which I have been loved by God through Jesus Christ. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. God loves people and we should love people. Now, so I was just reflecting on this. It just struck me that the world has been transformed by the love of God displayed through Christians since the time of Jesus Christ. 
As a matter of fact, if you walk it back, walk back the last 2,000 years, what you're going to see is that the dominant shifts in the way that the world has understood the way that we see things and so much of it that many of us would say, this is good, this is wonderful, I can't believe that it's happening, it's being motivated by people who are just simply displaying the love of Jesus Christ. I mean, politically, a lot of talk about abortion these days. But in the first century, immediately after the death of Jesus, it was a common practice that if a child was born and not wanted, they would walk that child out into the woods and leave it, and it would die by exposure. Christians show up literally in the first century, begin searching through the woods to find the children and bring them into their families. Within a hundred years, the cultural understanding of the humanity of an infant begins to shift. Those who were in their day and age considered untouchable, sick, dying, were served by those who loved Jesus because they saw dignity and worth in them. And what happened? The way we see people in the margins begin to shift. Because those who had power were willing to give it away. The world has been transformed by the love of God displayed through Christians since the time of Jesus. All right, so we're supposed to love the world. All right, love people. That seems so simple. <laughs> Not really. James 4. Look at this. Look at how apparent this contradiction looks. You people aren't faithful to God. Don't you know that if you love the world, you're God's enemy? What? And if you decide to be a friend of the world, then you make yourself an enemy of God. I want you to see this. This is so simple in that verse. But number two, the world is an enemy of God. It doesn't take much thought to understand that the world is not drifting towards correctness. Neither are you. The world is in its essence as a broken and fallen place, an enemy of God. Now just for fun, in that verse that if you love the world, you're an enemy of God. Now let's think about that. Back to the original text. What's the Greek word in the original text that's used? It's the exact same word. It's the word cosmos. Which in John 3.16 means humanity. But in this verse, which is very odd for Greek, which is a very specific, exact language, means something totally different. It means the systems and powers of this world. Worldly affairs and politics the ungodly multitude. That if I become friends with that, then I become the push against the things of God. How can something that God loves, God loves the world, also be his enemy? And the truth is that you have a very personal example of that because it's you. 
It's me. Something that God loves so intently and personally, but also at the same time unknowingly and unwittingly at times has been used to thwart the plans of God. Matthew 16 is a beautiful example of this. Matthew 16, Jesus goes to his followers and he asks them a question. Who, who do people say that I am? Uh, people say you're Elijah, reborn, you're, you're a prophet. Okay, that's great. And here's the, the question that's still good for us today. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, in verse 16, you're, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus responds to him, looks at him. That was not from you. My Father in heaven revealed that to you, Peter. You just, you just prophesied. You heard from God and you spoke his word. And then Jesus does something that's counterintuitive. He predicts that he's going to die. This is not going to end well, guys. As a matter of fact, this is all working its way towards a very ugly end in which I'm going to be executed. And in verse 23, literally, seven verses later, Peter, no, Jesus, don't let it be so. And Jesus, who just called Peter a prophet, looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about this in heavenly ways. You're thinking about it in earthly ways. You're going to become a stumbling block to me. Get behind me, Satan. If Peter can go from prophet to Satan in one conversation, we need to accept and understand the enemy can and will use us too. I want to say something that's so important in this context. People are not the problem. The Bible clearly says in Ephesians 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not those people. They can finally get their act together. The problem is that we live in a fallen world that is evil forces that are manipulating and coercing the way that people behave. So 1 John 2 1 John says a lot about this, the world and God. Look at this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. That's really the issue here, isn't it? It's what's in the world. People are eternal. God, his word, people, not contained to this world. But there are things in this world that are not of God. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For look at this, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So I'm gonna make this statement, then we're gonna dive into this verse. We must learn to fight back against what is in the world that does not come from God. And we're going to focus specifically on this verse, fighting back against the world. 1 John 2.16 says that there are three things in the world that are overtly not from God. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We're going to go through them each specifically. Number one, the lust of the flesh. This is the corrupted physiological desires that we have. I need to eat but that desire is corrupted. I want to eat too much. I want to love good desire, but 
It moves to lust. And instead of wanting to give myself to one person, I want to give myself to everybody because I want everybody. Self-control, good. Corrupted becomes the desire to control every other thing. What God created good, the enemy has corrupted through sin. These physiological desires that we have, these are all good things, born out of something good, but corrupted by sin into something that God never meant it to be. This is our flesh. Last week we talked about that. We talked about the difference between lust and love. Lust is self-seeking. It's all about me. What can you do for me? This is what I get. I want you to get this, this, this. Love is self-denying. It's not about me. It's not about me. Now, how does this work in the world? I want you to just take a moment and, and track with me through this. We live in a world that's systematically manipulating our corrupted desires. As a matter of fact, right now, there are literally billions of dollars being spent to understand how they can take a corrupted desire inside of you and manipulate you into action. It's called marketing. It's just simply called marketing. I mean, you've heard this before, right? Sex sells. Sex is a good thing created by God for one specific relationship. Corrupted I want that, and I want that, and I want that, and I want that, and I want that. Now, no longer a good thing. The broken desire to see something and want it when it's not yours. So tell me why when I flip through a men's health magazine, trying to sell me like supplements with a half-naked woman. Why? Because sex sells manipulating decisions based on broken, innate desires. I told you earlier, like the desire to control yourself, self-control, is holy and a byproduct of a healthy relationship with God, self-control. The desire to control everything else is broken. So why do you think the world's trying to sell you 10 ways to fix your marriage and to fix your kids and to fix your coworkers and to fix your neighbors? Why? Because it's manipulating a broken innate desire. I mean, we know more in our day and age about what's healthy for you when it comes to food. So why is it that when I watch TV or scroll through my face, I'm being tempted to go, hey, go spend 99 cents on this burger. It's got eight strips of bacon, not four. What? I got to have that. Why? Because the world is trying to manipulate what's broken within you. So how do we fight the lust of the flesh in the world? And what I'm about to say is going to be remarkably counterintuitive for some of you. I hope over the next couple of minutes I can help it make sense. Number one, address sin personally before you try to address it publicly. There have been so many believers who have screamed at the world 
to change things that they were unwilling to address in their own life. And everybody watching it's going, that's, you're telling everybody to do something you ain't even doing yourself. You know what we call that? A hypocrite. That's what we call that. A hypocrite. And it's really easy to think, well, we live in the New Testament. It's a gospel of grace. I know that I'm supposed to do that, but, but grace is covered. Jesus died for me. 1 Peter 1. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. This is theologically what we call an allscape. There's no exclusion to this. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. God wants his people to be holy like he is. And sin becomes systematic when people of God, when the people of God fail to pursue personal holiness. As a matter of fact, if you walk back history and you look at the times that the people of God got real angry about stuff and started yelling at everybody when they weren't doing anything about it, things got worse. But when the people of God humbled themselves and began to address sin and actually started working on things got better. There's a progression for how this should work. It's I start with my heart. It's my heart. Why would I ever want to yell at somebody about something that I haven't already done the work in my heart to deal with? I get humbled by the, that, that frustrates me. But often the things that frustrate you in the world are actually the things that frustrate you the most about you. So what do I do? I humble myself. I repent, I get on my face, and I start to do the work in my own heart. And then when I've done that, then I can work in my house. This is when you go to your kids, this is not who we're going to be. We're not going to treat people that way. We're going to say thank you. We're going to have grateful, appreciative hearts. We're going to be respectful. We're going to honor. And we do that in our house. Then we do it in our family, broad, in a broader way. Then it's our community, and then our tribe, and then our world. And so many people want to invert that and start trying to fight something in the world that they've never fought in their own heart. If we're not fighting sin in our own territory, we'll be ineffective outside of it. Some of us are trying to fight it somewhere and we've never even gained a victory in the place that we have authority and influence. So how do we fight the lust of the flesh? We get real personal about sin. And we make sin a personal issue before it ever becomes a public issue. Then the lust of the eyes. The lust, this is issues of beauty and satisfaction. Please hear me. God gave us beautiful things in this world. And that's a good thing. There are beautiful things to enjoy. But too often we try to find fulfillment and satisfaction in beautiful temporary things. I'll finally make it if I can get into that house or if I can get those clothes or if I can get those shoes. If I can finally afford those clothes or we can finally go on the trip, whatever it is, it's temporary. And again, the enemy is attacking you through the world. 
I'm, I'm probably the only person that's ever thought this or heard this in my mind. You need to get that. You need to get it. You deserve that. You deserve it. You've worked so hard. You need those new golf clubs. I mean, just come on, somebody, right? Need some new shoes. You deserve it. You deserve it. Then you'll never be happy without that. What you've got's not good enough. And actually what's happening is exactly what John said. It's lust. Lust will never allow you to be satisfied with what you have. And if you give it a place in your life, it might right now just be your clothes. It might be your house. But if you give it a place, it's going to start to take ground in your heart. What I have is not enough. I, I, need, I need better clothes. I, I need a nicer car. I need a bigger house. I, I need better friends. I, I need a new spouse. What I have is not enough. This is why I'm going to continually bring you back several times a year to these few verses out of 1 Timothy chapter 6. True godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. Now look at that. Godliness, pursuing God, being the person that God wants you to be, plus being content with where I'm at in life is great wealth. Y'all need to hear me. There's a kind of wealthy that you can't buy. And truly, you'll never be wealthy in life until you possess that kind of wealthiness. It, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can take nothing with us, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Notice the standard for the Apostle Paul and his young protege, Timothy, is we have enough food and clothing. The most preeminent figure in the emerging New Testament church, maybe top 10 most significant figures in the last 2,000 years. His standard for contentment was, I got enough food and clothing. You notice how much lower his standard is than ours? So how do we fight back against the lust of the eyes? How do we do that? Number two, fight the notion that more is better with the discipline of contentment. Fight the notion that more is better with the discipline of contentment. That's the cultural belief. That's the lie. If one is good, more is better. If one Good pair of jeans is good, then 10 is obviously better. If one pair of shoes is good, then 25 is better. If one is good, more is better. And the truth is, is that it's addressing our appetites. Food, obviously appetite. Affection, appetite. Control, appetite. Success, appetite. And the problem with broken appetites is they only know one word. And that word is more. I want more. I want more control. I want more attention. I want more affection. I want more girls. I want more money. All of it. I just want more. And what will happen is you'll allow, if that becomes the way your life 
is being led, you're going to get into places where you go, oh, I want more influence at work. I want to make more money for my family. Oh, I know there's a promotion coming up. Hey guys, I love you, but for the next five months, y'all got to deal without me. Mom, you can just take care of everything at home because here's what's happening. I'm going after that promotion. I'm going to get some. It's all for you guys. It's all for you. I want more. Don't sacrifice what you ultimately want for what you want right now. Your appetites will lie to you and they will make things seem like they're more valuable and more important than they are in the moment. They'll cause you to sacrifice what you ultimately want for what you want right now. See, the thing about lust, lust suggests that God is not good because he hasn't given us what we want. That's the lie. I want more. God, why aren't you giving me more? I deserve more. I deserve better. Which is important to understand in the next thing that John says is in the world. The boastful pride of life. Which can just be reframed real simply as selfish ambition. And for many of us, it's difficult to understand. How's ambition wrong? How's that bad? Last week I shared this verse with you, Galatians 5, verse 20. When I was talking about the way that this broken flesh works out in our life, and it says, the works of the flesh are plain. People become enemies and they fight. They become jealous, angry, and ambitious. They separate into parties and groups, which just doesn't even need commentary. But that middle verse, or the middle sentence there, they become jealous, angry, and ambitious. For many of us, that word ambitious seems like it doesn't fit. Jealous, angry, ambitious. And I explained it last week week, this way. I'm jealous because you have that. I'm jealous. You You have kids that can actually smile for a picture. You have a husband that showed up with, with, with flowers for you at work. You, you have, I'm, I'm jealous because you have it. Now I'm angry. I'm angry at God because God, you didn't give me that. God, why didn't you give me that? And then ambitious. I'm gonna go get it on my own. I'm gonna go get that for myself. In Luke 12, Jesus tells a parable that should scare us. Because this parable literally makes sense in our cultural context. And here's the thing. When something makes sense, but it's on the wrong side, we probably need to continually be reminded of it. It's about a a farmer who plants and has an amazing harvest. And so they're bringing it all in. He realizes this isn't going to fit into our barns. And so he gives an order. Tear down all all the barns, build bigger barns. And he makes this statement in verse 19. Then we will be able to take life easy. Isn't that what we want to do? Doesn't that make sense in our culture? I got an inheritance. Oh, store that money. We can take life easy from now on. But the next verse, Jesus twists the narrative. But God said to him, you fool, 
This very night, your life will be demanded from you. In other words, you fool, what you did was foolish. This is not the way of God. And you see why here. Then who will have, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So the implication here is that what you were given was not for you. You co-opted the blessings of God and you started to use it for your own ambitions. The next verse, this is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. I'm gonna make a simple statement out of that. If you wanna follow Jesus, your life cannot be about you. It cannot be about your understanding, your ways, your thoughts, your opinions. Your life cannot be about you. And there are too many people who profess Jesus, but really all they're doing is doing life their own way. This is not just some kind of covert assumption from that story. It's literally the direct words of Jesus in Matthew 16. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. So how do we fight this overtly prideful world? Number three, we fight against the prideful way the world lives by humbly surrendering to the way of Jesus. Jesus invited us into a different way of living than the world lives. As a matter of fact, the early Christians were so convinced of this, they called Christianity the way. So how do we fight this? We surrender out of humility to what God is inviting us into. Now, I know what you're thinking. We're talking about the world, Kevin. How can one person change anything? I'm just one person. I mean, what is it that God could possibly do through me? Well, one person changed everything. One person literally changed the world. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That's what gospel means. That God loved the world that hated him so much so that this love, the giving love of God, gave his one and only son and his death, the son's death, the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection on the cross where he died carrying our sinfulness and then raising to new life, overcoming death in the grave. This changed everything. And for centuries, people endeavoring to follow Christ followed his lead and humbly surrendering to the will of the Father. In the first couple hundred years after the death of Jesus Christ, they marched into cities that they knew they'd be killed for because of official persecution throughout the Roman Empire. And they marched in during times of famine and plague to feed the poor, to save children. Many of them being arrested and publicly executed in ways that are 
far too horrific to recount in a place like this. As the move of God continued, there were people who left home and left their family to take the gospel of Jesus to unreached people around the world, people that they'd read about, lands that they'd heard of, just to try to share the message of Jesus Christ. That's St. Patrick, who literally left behind his family to go to Ireland because he believed that God had called him there to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. These people carried the message of Jesus to tribes that wanted to kill them. This picture is of Jim Elliott, Stephen Saint, four young men who'd graduated from college and read about a violent tribe that had never been reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, felt a call on their life to do it. So they took this yellow plane, flew over for months, dropping presents, just trying to build a rapport. One day they left their wives behind and their kids. They flew in to make first contact. They radioed in, it's going good. It's going good, we're making relationships, we're learning how to communicate, all of those things. Until about a couple months in, and it went radio silence. There's nothing to be heard from. And their bodies were found floating in a river. Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, after everybody had left, decided that she would not. That if God had truly called her husband, she was going to stay and follow through with that calling. Within two years, Every person in that tribe had given their life to Jesus Christ. People humbly surrendered to the call of God. Served cities filled with poor and sick that nobody else wanted to go to. This is Mother Teresa, who as a young nun in India visited Calcutta and saw the way that the caste system had leveraged itself against the poor and marginalized in that city and said, I will give my life to seeing the love of Jesus displayed to those who don't. And nobody wants to serve them. Nobody wants to be here. Creating spaces where people would die with dignity, where those who were poor would find food where kids would be educated and generally the love of God was displayed. People humbly surrendered to the call of God on their life, used new media as an opportunity to share the hope of Jesus to more people in this century than have ever heard it in the history of the world before. This is Reinhard Bonnke. Reinhardt was born a young man during World War II in Germany felt the call of God on his life to leave behind everything that he knew and to go to Africa to proclaim the message of the gospel simply that people would hear it and have an opportunity to respond. 
It is estimated that in his lifetime, five million Africans gave their life to Jesus as he preached and shared his message. And today, the continent of Africa is one of the places within the world where the gospel is thriving because of his work. This is Billy Graham, who in post-World War II America first co-opted radio and then TV to do the very same thing, literally sharing the gospel through those venues with more people than had ever heard it before in the world. What can God do through one man or woman? Humbly surrendered to him. More than we could ever imagine. How do we fight the world? How do we fight back? We make sin a personal issue. We fight the notion that more is better by fighting with the discipline of contentment. And then we humbly surrender to the call of God on our lives. And when we do that, the love of Jesus on display through us is able to accomplish infinitely more than we could ever ask, dream, or imagine. What can God do through our lives? When we've humbly surrendered it more than we could ever imagine. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.